One of the few podcasts that I follow is called Fighting for the Faith, done by a Lutheran pastor in North Dakota by the name of Chris Rosebro. Frequently, he can be heard to say the three most important rules for sound biblical exegesis, that's just reading the Bible, are context, context, context. Similarly, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson frequently quotes his father, who was a little-known Baptist pastor, as teaching him from his youth, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. I share these two quotes at the outset of our Easter Sunday message because we're going to look at one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, a verse that is routinely quoted without reference to its context. Before we get there, let me share a bit more about the importance of context. I appreciate a series of visuals that I discovered that were put together by Ethnos 360, a missions organization that Alfred Allman Bible Church has supported for many, many years. Sometimes we think of an isolated verse. Perhaps we've memorized it, or perhaps we can only remember the citation, the chapter and verse, without even being able to remember the exact words of the verse. Sometimes we can even be tempted to build an entire theology on a single verse. However, God didn't drop the words of individual verses from heaven as his revelation to us. Instead, he included the words of that particular verse in a particular context. So in order to properly understand a single verse, we must expand, first of all, to the verses surrounding that verse, the, verse, the verses both before and after that verse. God chose to communicate in ordinary human languages, which includes the reality that we form meaning not simply from individual words nor even individual sentences, but usually through larger units of thought, like paragraph. From there, we should even expand to the surrounding chapters in the Bible. This is the case because the Spirit of God did not breathe out chapter numbers or verse divisions. Those numbers in our printed Bibles were added much, much later. Chapter numbers and verse divisions can be helpful, but sometimes they can distract us from seeing connections that the author intended us to see. Thus, what we call, for example, the book of Romans was a letter composed by the Apostle Paul with a unified message for Roman Christians. They were intended to read all of it in one sitting and seek to understand the overall message. Now, certainly, it can be useful uh, to see the verses in smaller units in much more depth. We've been trying to do that in ABF for about three years in our study of the book of Romans. But in doing that, looking at those smaller units, we try not to lose sight of the larger context. Also, because the Bible is a singular, unified message from God, we expect to see connections even between different books. Thus, God intends for us to work to discover those connections. Considering context is absolutely crucial. And for the moment, we're only talking about literary context. We also have to consider the historical and cultural contexts. And as we seek to apply the scriptures in our own lives, we have to be carefully evaluate our own historical and cultural contexts and be sensitive to how our contexts might differ from the context of the original authors of scripture. Yes, reading the Bible can be difficult. But 
That's why we don't just read it once and then set it aside like we do most other books in our lives. We keep reading and rereading the Bible with the hope that we'll grasp more and more of what God intended to communicate over the course of our lifetime. This is also why reading the Bible is not supposed to be a merely private activity. Yes, we should read the Bible in private, but we should also be discussing it with other Christians. We should be submitting to teaching and preaching from the Bible. One of my primary responsibilities as a pastor, and it is also one of my greatest joys in life, is to strive to help you read the Bible better, to help you understand it better, and to encourage you to respond to what you read there appropriately. That brings us to our famous verse for today, John 3.16. Many of you can probably quote the verse. Just the citation, John 3.16, is often seen in various places outside of church. I've seen it on billboards, I've seen it on trucks, I've seen it on hats and mugs and posters and stickers and bumper stickers. I've seen it on posters at professional sports games. I've even seen it painted on men's chests and tattooed on people's bodies. I won't ask anyone to quote the verse out loud this morning, but I would like to see a show of hands. How many of you think you could quote John 3.16 relatively accurately if you were asked? Look around. It's a lot of folks. Without looking in your Bible right now, and considering that some of you might have read ahead earlier in the week, knowing what we would be looking at, I wonder how many of you could tell me on the spot, and again, I'm not asking, what the three verses before John 3.16 are talking about. Now, as you think about whether or not you remember the immediate context of John 3.16, consider whether it might be possible that someone could quote John 3.16 without really understanding what it means. If we don't remember the context of a particular verse, even in general terms, how likely is it that we are missing something significant in our understanding of that verse? And if you're wondering what John 3.16 has to do with the resurrection of Jesus, and thus why we might be preaching this passage on Easter Sunday... Perhaps the context will clear that up for you in just a few minutes. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3 if you have a Bible. If not, feel free to pull out your phone and look it up. You can access your Bible that way as well. Some of the verses we'll be looking at this morning will be up on the screen behind me for you. But if you have your own Bible, it might be helpful for you to see some of the other connections that I'm just going to mention along the way. John chapter 3 begins with a conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling and judicial council in Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 2, we're told about how Jesus was in Jerusalem for Passover, and we're told that Jesus had been performing some miraculous signs. John has only told us about him turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana, but he was doing other things as well, even in Jerusalem. And in John 2.23, John tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That seems good. But then verse 24 begins with a but. This is the setup for Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Look at John 2.24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, John wrote in Greek, and we're reading these words in English. One thing we don't see clearly in English here is that the word translated believe in verse 23 is the same word translated in trust in verse 24. Some have summarized the point this way. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Now, that way of putting it is not quite right, but John is telling us readers that there is something wrong with these people, those who believe in his name. This sets us up to look carefully and to watch out throughout the Gospel of John when we read about people who believe. And that will become important as we think about John chapter 3. But here, John raises a question for us that he doesn't immediately answer. He says that Jesus knows what is in all people. Do we know what is in all people? What Do we know what it is in man that is problematic? What is it in people that warranted Jesus not entrusting himself to them? Nicodemus becomes an example, exhibit A, of a man who believed in the name of Jesus because of the signs Jesus had been doing, but who had something still wrong inside of him, such that at this point, Jesus will not entrust himself to Nicodemus. Now, we're not going to walk through the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in detail, we are going to hit the highlights in order to sufficiently understand the context of John 3.16. In verses 1 to 15 of John chapter 3, we read about Jesus telling Nicodemus about certain heavenly things. Nicodemus approaches Jesus by night, which is not good. Nicodemus will only come under the cover of darkness. And our passage is going to have some things to say about darkness that illuminate why this is a problem. Nicodemus expresses his own amazement at the signs Jesus has been performing. But let's focus on Jesus' words to Nicodemus. He wants to tell Nicodemus about being born from above. Now, most of our English translations have the phrase born again in verse 3. But most of our English translations also have a footnote indicating that the word translated again could equally well be translated from above. It is a pun in Greek. But seeing the nuance from above becomes important later in the passage. Look at what Jesus says in verses 3 and 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the core instruction for Nicodemus. Before anyone can see or enter God's kingdom, that person must experience a new birth, a second birth, a birth from above, a water and spirit birth. Said differently, the Holy Spirit must grant a person new life as a prerequisite for even seeing God's kingdom. Thus, the Spirit is depicted as coming down from heaven upon a person, to cleanse that person and give that person a new life that sees and enters God's kingdom. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Thus he asks in verse 9, how can these things be? That is the pivotal question that the rest of the passage seeks to answer. 
In verse 10, Jesus chastises Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, because he doesn't understand what Jesus has been talking about. These things were foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures, but even this Pharisaic expert in the scriptures doesn't get it. In fact, none of the Jewish leaders get it. Jesus says as much in verses 11 and 12. The yous in verses 11 and 12 shift to plural. Nicodemus is a representative of the rest of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus indicates that Nicodemus is not simply a particularly slow learner. Rather, his lack of understanding is characteristic of all the Jewish leaders. In fact, his lack of understanding is characteristic of all humanity. This, I suggest, is what Jesus knew was in all people, even in their believing in his name because of the signs that he was doing. They do not really understand who he is or what he has come to do. In verse 12, Jesus seems to indicate that his explanation of being born from above, of being born of water and the Spirit, is an earthly thing. I think he means that he's using earthly analogies to communicate the truth, using the image of birth, referring to the cleansing of water, and comparing the Spirit to wind. Even with these earthly analogies, Nicodemus doesn't understand. Yet Jesus must communicate a heavenly message. While Jesus will utilize earthly analogies to illustrate at times and explain the gospel, the message of salvation itself is a message that comes from heaven. Indeed, as John 1.18 already indicated for us readers, Jesus has come to reveal God in a way that goes well beyond the way He was revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures and in past history. Verse 13 is very difficult, but the point seems to be that Jesus is the heavenly Son of Man. That's why He's qualified and capable to reveal heavenly things. No one else has ever gone into heaven and then come back down to earth to provide revelation from God. But Jesus has a unique access to heaven. That seems to be the point here, which he will refer to throughout the Gospel of John. He'll repeatedly indicate that the words he speaks come directly from God in heaven. But for our purposes this morning, verses 14 and 15 are most important Jesus tells Nicodemus about the lifting of the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus again draws the Old Testament to Nicodemus' attention from Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. Now surely Nicodemus would have remembered the full story I want to make sure that we remember the full story as well. So let's look at Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. 
So Moses prayed for the people. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years. Most of their parents have died by this point, the generation that came out of Egypt. This is the generation of Israelites who will cross the Jordan River and take possession of the promised land. God has been providing manna for them every day for 40 years. And he has repeatedly provided water for them in the desert. And now they are sick of the manna. Also, right before this episode, the Lord had enabled them to be victorious over some of the Canaanites in battle. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents into the camp to bite the people and to kill them. Why snakes? First, observe, Moses is writing this story. Moses writes the Hebrew word for serpent five times in this passage. Our English Bibles add an extra one. Moses also wrote the book of Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 3, the Hebrew word for serpent appears five times. Genesis 3 tells the story of the rebellion of humanity and the fall of human, of the human race into sin, rebellion, and death under God's judgment. Moses crafts this paragraph in such a way that parallels Genesis 3 in order to show that this new generation of Israel the generation that will enter the promised land still has the same problem that Adam and Eve introduced shortly after the beginning. In Genesis 3, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve into sin, which resulted in their rebellion and condemnation under God's judgment. Here, God sends the serpents as a judgment for the Israelites' rebellion. Second, the serpents reflect the people's implicit desire to return to Egypt. Their question addressed to both Moses and Yahweh, the Lord, was, why have y'all brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're implying that they had it better in Egypt. They were enslaved, but they had food and water. But of course, Yahweh has been providing them food and water all along the way. Likewise, Adam and Eve seemed to overlook the amazing provision of fruit from all the trees in the Garden of Eden so that they sought to eat from the one tree whose fruit God had prohibited them from eating. But here, the serpents are also a reminder of Egypt. Pharaoh commonly had an image of a cobra on his crown, and serpents were worshipped in Egypt. So, Yahweh sends these venomous serpents. They bite people, and people die. They had accused Yahweh of bringing the people into the wilderness to kill them, something their parents had also done earlier on. Now, Yahweh is sending serpents to kill them as a punishment for their rebellion. The Lord didn't bring them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. It is their sin that is leading to their death, just as it was the rebellion of their parents that led to their death in the wilderness. It is their sin that is leading to their death, just as it was the rebellion of Adam and Eve that led to death entering the world in the first place. Ironically, the Israelites are here showing themselves to be offspring of the serpent of Genesis 3. 
And the Lord sends serpents to bring ironic judgment, painful judgment against them. Well, the people quickly admit their sin. They don't like the snakes. Imagine that. Notice that they ask Moses to ask the Lord to remove the snakes. This is parallel to their experience in Egypt during the Exodus. When God sent his plagues against Egypt, Pharaoh would plead with Moses to ask Yahweh to remove the plague. Then Moses would pray and the Lord would remove the plague. It was that simple. But here, for the Israelites, it will not be quite that simple. Instead, the Lord commands Moses to craft an image of a serpent, what one writer calls a visual anti-venom. Moses chooses to craft this image out of copper or bronze, and then Moses was to set it up high on a pole. Relief for the people was not going to be automatic. The people who had been bitten had to look intently to gaze upon that image. Imagine the scenario for a minute. Many Israelites had been bitten by these serpents so that those bitten were lying on the ground, writhing in pain. In order for them to gain relief, they had to look up in their agony and look at a sculpture of the thing that was causing them pain. In order for them to gain relief, they had to look at what was causing their pain. The Hebrew word Moses uses for look at in verse 9 to describe the look that leads to life and rescues from death is a word that describes an intense gaze with deep consideration. Thus, it wasn't the stare that saved them. It was the obedience and the faith. The Lord said, look, and they must obey in order to live. If they refuse to look, they will die. As one writer says, if they spurn the bronze serpent, as they have said, yuck, to the manna that God provided, they will simply go on dying. But the Lord also promised that if they looked, they would live. So they must believe the promise in order to be saved, in order to live. In other words, words the Apostle Paul might use, they had to exercise the obedience of faith. That Moses lifted up this serpent sculpture on a pole, on a military standard, may indicate that he impaled the image on the pole. Since the serpent was a major symbol of Egypt, this act of Moses may be intended to remind the people that Yahweh had conquered Egypt and Pharaoh when he brought the people out. Thus, the people must see in this image of this impaled serpent a picture of Yahweh's victory over their enemies, both Egypt and the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Satan himself. On top of this, since the serpents are the immediate expression of God's wrath against them, they may also see here a picture of God overcoming His own wrath. They look and see an image of the curse. Trust the Lord's word that He would remove the curse, and they are healed They regain their lives. Jesus says that story points to Him. Surprise, surprise. It's all about Him. In John 3.14, we see the first occurrence of the term lifted up in John's gospel. This word will be used later in the gospel, and it will become increasingly clear as you read the story 
that it refers specifically to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. However, it has a double meaning. This term was used in Isaiah 52, 13, the opening of the famous suffering servant song that goes into Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The song goes on to describe his awful suffering, which makes us wonder about how the servant is being exalted. John capitalizes on this potential for double meaning. Jesus will be exalted as he dies on the cross. John will even speak of Jesus as being glorified in his death on the cross. Many folks speak of John 3.16 as a good summary of the gospel message, but I tell you it is not. Not without John 3, 14 and 15. The gospel message is found right here in these verses. The gospel message refers to the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. John 3, 16, as we'll see in just a minute, provides a rationale for the gospel, a reason why Jesus came to die. But it does not directly refer to the key aspects of the gospel. It is the lifting up of the Son of Man, the exaltation of Jesus in crucifixion that will result in life for all those who believe in Him. And of course, the lifting up must also include the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are viewed as one single act that accomplishes salvation. You can't have one piece without the others. Now, verse 15 needs to be observed carefully, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The phrase, in Him, in this verse, actually doesn't connect directly with the word believe like it usually does in the Gospel of John. The New American Standard Bible, though awkward, communicates what Jesus said a bit more clearly, so that whoever believes will, in Him, have eternal life. Eternal life is experienced only in Christ, in union with Him. This is the first reference to eternal life in John's Gospel. One writer observes an interesting connection with chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. He writes, Ironically, this life is promised to everyone who believes precisely in a context in which some have believed in His name and yet are not being given eternal life because Jesus would not entrust Himself to them. More important than pinning down the syntax here in verse 15 is maintaining the parallel with Numbers 21. Sinners under God's judgment look at an image of their judgment in order to have the judgment overturned. As one writer puts it, the simple equation endures. The cure for snakes is snakes. The cure for human life is one man's life. The cure for death is death. Nothing less will do. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate antidote to the snake bite of mortality that results from sin, as another writer says. Nicodemus, the Jewish leaders, and everyone else in the world was and is in the position of those rebellious Israelites in the wilderness, languishing under the judgment of God. It is in being lifted up on the cross that Jesus gained victory over that ancient serpent, the devil. It is in being lifted up on the cross that Jesus endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners. 
It is in being lifted up on the cross that Jesus completed the mission he had been sent to accomplish. The Son of Man must be exalted in crucifixion in order that he may give eternal life to whomever looks at him with faith. Just as the Israelites in the wilderness, under God's sentence of death, looked up with faith at the bronze serpent Moses had impaled and were spared from death. We only see this lifting up of Jesus on the cross as the great victory that it was because of Easter, because of the resurrection from the dead. This is the answer to Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? The only reason people can be born from above, the only reason people can see and enter God's kingdom, the only reason people can experience eternal life is because the Son of Man has been lifted up. Finally, we're ready for John 3.16. Now, if you're reading a red-letter edition of the Bible, you will probably see the rest of this section in red. However, most Bibles have a footnote after verse 15 indicating that many students of Scripture recognize that verses 16 to 21 were probably not spoken by Jesus. I hope that doesn't rock your boat too much. It's the Word of God, red letters or not. John, the Gospel writer, provides further elaboration for us, for his readers. It's likely that Nicodemus did not ever hear these words. Even if he did, Jesus has already said that he can't yet understand and receive them. John steps in here to address his readers, us, to give a larger context to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. In verses 16 and 17, John tells his readers about God's love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John is providing his readers with a broader context for the gospel message, a broader context for the lifting up of the Son of Man. The little word so needs a comment. It does not mean so much. It means in this way. John is telling us how. God loved the world. And that's not to take anything away from the vast magnitude or the vast measure of God's love for the world, as if such love could be measured. This is a unique statement. It is the first occurrence of the word love in John's gospel, and it is shocking that the world should be the object of God's love. Nowhere else in all of Scripture do we read about God loving the world? Only here. As one writer from the 1500s called Musculus observed, it ought to be noted here first that he does not say, for God so loved his people Israel, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ was certainly promised to Israel in the law and prophets, but not in such a way that he was destined for the salvation of Israel alone. John's Gospel uses the term world quite a lot. God loved the world that didn't recognize Jesus as its creator when he came. God loved the world that hates Jesus. God loved the world that cannot receive the Holy Spirit. God loved the world that rejoices 
when Jesus leaves the world. God loved the world that Jesus has overcome. God loved the world that hates Jesus' followers. God loved the world that does not know the Father. The world is characterized by darkness. In John's Gospel, the world represents the mass of fallen humanity in rebellion against God, and the world includes both Jews and Gentiles. God loves his enemies who comprise the world. As Don Carson writes, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That is the customary connotation of cosmos, the Greek word translated world. God demonstrated his love for the world by giving his eternally begotten Son. The Son, who has always existed in relationship with his Father, the divine Son, the eternal Son, who came down into the dark world from heaven, God gave him. Now, John doesn't here specify what gave means. Gave doesn't explicitly say that he gave him over to death or that he gave him so that he would die. That is what would happen. Thus, a Jewish Christian reader might read this in light of another gift of God in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, a prominent place where God has given something that results in life for people is Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Yahweh gave to Israel the blood of animals, which means that Yahweh graciously, freely chose to accept the death of animals in the place of the death of Israelites. So when John says that God gave His only begotten Son, he may be hinting that God gave Him as the final and ultimate sacrifice to pay for sins. Indeed, that is the logic of the rest of the verse. The giving of the Son provides a way for people to avoid perishing. Thus, the giving of the Son results in a situation in which some people in the world won't perish. Whoever in the world looks at the Son with faith will be spared from eternal death and will experience eternal life instead. As Carson writes, that is the immediate result of the love of God for the world, the mission of the Son. His ultimate purpose is the salvation of those in the world who believe in Him. In verse 17 then, John elaborates on this giving in terms of sending. God sent His Son into the world, which implies the Son's existence outside of the world, that He comes from heaven God sent His Son into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. Just as the purpose of the the sun's shining, S-U-N, the sun's shining is to give light to the world, but it also creates shadows. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to save the world, but condemnation of those who refuse to believe in Him will be an inevitable byproduct. In verses 16 and 17, John shows that the world is divided into two categories of people. There are those who will perish, and there are those who will experience eternal life. There are those who will be condemned, 
and there are those who will be saved. Faith, looking up with faith at the lifted up sun, is the characteristic mark of those who will be saved, those who experience eternal life. Thus, these verses divide humanity, divide the world into believers and unbelievers. God didn't send His Son with the mission of condemning the world. The world already has the sentence of death, the sentence of condemnation hanging over it. And as a byproduct of God sending His Son into the world, the world's condemnation will be confirmed. John further elaborates on the condemnation of unbelievers in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That word already is prominent and significant. Whoever in the world does not look at God's Son with faith is already condemned under God's sentence of death. Just as the Israelites were languishing on the ground, having been bitten by the snakes, headed toward certain death, so everyone who does not trust in Jesus is languishing under God's judgment, headed toward certain eternal death. The because provides the evidence for how we know that these folks in the world already stand condemned. The evidence for their condemnation is that they refuse to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This language of believing in the name of Jesus harkens back to John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here, John equates believing in His name with receiving Jesus. Welcoming Jesus, specifically in context, welcoming Him as the light. We'll see the importance of this in the next couple of verses in John 3. But notice the connection between believing in Jesus and being born of God. Whoever in the world receives the light of Jesus and has received the right to become children of God. That's adoption language. Those who receive Jesus as the light have been adopted into God's family. But then John mixes his metaphors by suggesting that entry into the family of God comes by a new birth. Those who are adopted were born of God. Thus, to be adopted into God's family is to become a true member of God's family forever. Back in John 3.18, we see that a person's refusal to believe demonstrates that they remain under God's condemnation just as any Israelite in the wilderness who had been bitten by a serpent who then refused to look up at the bronze serpent on the pole would die in sin, die under the judgment of God. But whoever looks at God's Son with faith is spared from condemnation. In verses 19 and 20, John tells his readers about people's hatred of the light. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. That because, at the end of verse 19, works like the previous because in verse 18. 
That is, people's evil works show their hatred of the light. God's Son came into the world as light, but the people's works were evil. And that is how we know they loved the darkness rather than the light. That's how we know that they hated the light and refused to come to the light so as to prevent their evil deeds from being exposed as evidence for their condemnation. The word translated exposed is translated convicted elsewhere. It's a legal term that refers to conviction of a crime. If the evidence supports a guilty verdict, then the person is convicted. God loved the world. The people of the world loved the darkness. God loved the people who loved the darkness. The world has been characterized by and covered with darkness ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. But as John wrote in John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness of the world, the evil of people's deeds cannot hinder God's Son from completing His mission. And His mission was to save the dark world. Nicodemus has come to the light at night and he has had his lack of understanding exposed. In John 3, is Nicodemus one who loves darkness or is he truly coming to the light? We find out later that this is not the end of his story. We don't know what he made of what he heard from Jesus that night about the lifting up of the Son of Man. We don't know how this nighttime conversation, conversation with Jesus immediately impacted him. But later, we see Nicodemus questioning the other Jewish leaders who wanted to arrest Jesus. And we finally see him purchasing expensive burial spices for Jesus' dead body. Something changed in Nicodemus somewhere along the way. Those who come to the light will have their deeds exposed as evidence for their condemnation. But those who come to the light can have their condemnation overturned. The lifting up of the Son of Man provides the way. His death on the cross, condemned as a criminal, though truly without sin, God accepts as a sacrifice in the place of all who come to Him. But there's another important side of reality that John wants his readers to know about those who come to the light. Look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What kind of person comes to the light? John says it is whoever does what is true, or more literally, whoever does the truth. Perhaps Nathaniel is an example of what this looks like, even with his famous question when he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In John 1.47, Jesus addressed him saying, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. That word indeed is translated in some versions as truly. His guileless character sets him apart from many Jews of his day and could well be viewed as doing the truth. Nathaniel was very different from the man who became Israel in the first place, Jacob 
who is very much associated with deceit in the book of Genesis. Moreover, as Nathanael comes to Jesus in response to Jesus, indicating that he had seen him under the fig tree, Nathanael professed his faith, confessing, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus indicates that his faith is valid, though incomplete. There will be more for Nathanael to see and more for Nathanael to believe as Jesus fulfills all that Israel was intended to be. So what does John 3.21 tell us about Nathanael? His guileless character was something worked by God. When Nathanael comes to Jesus, Jesus reveals that Nathanael's truthfulness has been worked by God. He has come to the light, but this does not mean that he was yet saved. Nevertheless, he has begun to look at the sun, but he doesn't yet see the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Only then will Nathanael look and live forever. Returning to Nicodemus, even his coming to Jesus at night and his later feeble attempt to defend Jesus before the Sanhedrin and his final show of devotion to Jesus in purchasing the large amount of burial spices, all of these things are deeds that were carried out in God. Thus, these things may very well be seen as God's preparatory work in drawing these men to Jesus so that they then look at Him with faith when He is lifted up on the cross, lifted from the grave in His resurrection, and lifted up into heaven in His ascension. And when they see Jesus that way, they are saved, rescued from the eternal condemnation that they deserve. The same is true for us. God's love for the world is on display when He sent His Son into the world. Jesus brought the light of truth and eternal life into the dark world of sinners sitting under the judgment of God. God's love for the world is on display as Jesus completed His mission for which He was sent. He lived a fully human life completely obedient to His Father in every way, never sinning in thought, word, attitude, emotion, deed. Then He was lifted up. He became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. All humanity, all the people of the world stand condemned under the curse of God because our first father, Adam, rebelled in the Garden of Eden and so became a rebel who then produced offspring who are, by nature, rebels. And all the people of the world stand condemned under the curse of God because we too sin and disobey God's law. Even those in the world who've never heard a single command of God still stand condemned, both because of their descent from Adam and because of their own sin. God's love for the world of humans in rebellion against Him is marvelous to consider. But it's not the gospel. His love for the world motivated Him to send His Son to be the Savior of the world. And Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension did indeed save the world. Not by rescuing every single individual in the world 
but by rescuing all who look at Him with faith. Whoever believes in Him will not perish. Whoever believes in Him will experience eternal life. The call for every person in the world is, come to the light. Don't be afraid that the light will expose your deeds. Jesus will later tell a multitude of Jews that they must come to Him in order to experience eternal life. And the only way that could happen is if the Father draws them. Those who come to Jesus for eternal life hear from the Father and learn from the Father. The salvation God has accomplished is entirely Trinitarian. People don't always come to Jesus the way Nathaniel did. Even what he thought he understood, he didn't. Even his faith, which is commended by Jesus, needed adjustment and improvement. Sometimes we experience the slow coming to the light. We take time to consider. We sit in church Sunday after Sunday, hear the word preached repeatedly, and slowly the light dawns on us. But for others, our experience may be more like light suddenly invading the darkness. Just as God said, let there be light in the beginning. And there was instantaneously light. So he turns on the lights in our hearts when we hear the gospel. According to Paul, that's true for every believer, even though it might not have felt that way in our experience. Wherever you are today, whether you come here Sunday after Sunday, or this is your first time inside a church building in a long time, come to Jesus. See him as the light of the world who reveals all truth. See him as the bread of life who will never leave you hungry and dissatisfied. See him as the water of life who will quench your thirst forever. But see him most of all as the sacrificial lamb, the one who was lifted up, the suffering servant who gave his life to pay the penalty for your sins. Don't refuse to look. Look and live forever. He is alive forevermore, and He will give you life forevermore. See Him as the risen King. The world is a dark place without Jesus. With Him there is always light. He is the only hope of the world, the only hope for anyone in the world to escape the condemnation we all so plainly deserve. He has done all that is necessary. He has satisfied His Father's righteous wrath. He has carried the guilt of sinners. He has risen from the dead, victorious over all that made this world dark in the first place, Satan, sin, and death. Flee to Him from the wrath of God. Trust Him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your love for the world on display in the sending of Your Son into this world. We're we're thankful for the truth that the darkness of this world could not overcome Him. The light dispels the darkness, and so it has with the coming of Jesus. Would You draw us into the light, all of us? Help us to cling to Him as light, to walk in the light as He is in the light and to experience the joy of fellowship with God 
and with each other forever and ever. We thank you for the empty tomb that pins these wonderful truths in history, in historical, verifiable fact, not simply religious ideas. Thank you for coming into history and radically transforming it, even as you move history along as the true guide, true interpreter, true controller of history. You are our great God, the sovereign king of all, and you reign. We thank you for the gift of your son. Help us to follow him wherever he leads. Help us to not fear being exposed by the light of the truth of the word of God. Thank you for coming close to us in the person of your son. We worship you for what you have done. We love you because you have loved us so richly and so deeply. Beyond calculation, beyond contemplation, help us to just worship in response. Thank you again for the great gift. That's all we have to do is to say thank you. Let us not try to pay you back for it. Such is not your way and such is not possible anyway. Help us to live faithfully as your children with the great privileges you've given to us, with the Spirit of God living in us, changing us, conforming us to the image of your true eternal Son. Help us to live that out with faith and obedience day by day. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. I hope you'll stay seated for just a moment.